Welcome to This Must Be The Place, a podcast about communities and the people who build, support, and live in them. I'm your host, Greg Dunlap. Our guest today is Matt Scotts. Matt is the founder of Let's Care, an organization where he passes the mic to those who often go unheard in social change, in part through his new film, 20s and Change in San Francisco. Matt's also the manager of storytelling and engagement at the world's leading climate solutions resource project Drawdown, and he was the community lead for the world's largest global hackathon, NASA's Space Apps Challenge. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Matt. Yeah, thank you for having me, Greg. And it's good to good to be in touch and be part of what you're creating with this must be the place. This is yeah, the place thanks. for me right now. So I'm excited to be here. <laughs> thanks. It's great to have you. So um why don't you kind of tell me, you know, you've had a lot of positions and involvement in community management in your career. And why don't you kind of just tell me how you got into it, you know? Like what's your what's your organ origin story with this work? Yeah, I sort of feel like I fell into community management. I'm not sure if it's like that for most people, but no, that's not common at all. No, it's completely (laughs) common. Yeah, and I I think what's what's so interesting is sort of uh, just this realization that I have now, which is how important community is um, to accomplish anything, but in particular when it comes to making an impact. And so in college, I I would really say that was my first experience with community management. I was way too involved on campus at George Washington University doing like a billion different things beyond going to class. And, you know, I was by my senior year leading different student organizations. So one of them was uh, was Students Against Sexual Assault and working with that community. Another was in my role as the vice president of the Residence Hall Association. And so in these different ways, even though I didn't know the term community management, I found that the way that I was engaging with other students and with the administrators, that was all part of community management. But I think the place where I I actually discovered the term community management was with the NASA Space Apps Challenge and with my work at the innovation agency Second Muse, where I started in April 2016. And I remember a few weeks before that, before I started and, and while they were going through the final interview process, I was asked about my experience with community management. And I, I didn't really know if I was sure of what that meant exactly. And, and I wonder if, um, if that's the case for most folks again, too, who kind of got started with the term, but, uh, you know, I, I kind of said, you know, I've had experience working with people, interacting with them, showcasing their stories, responding to their needs in different ways, and really being sure that the individual is represented in this bigger group that we're forming, because I think that's really critical. And they said, great, that sounds good. And um, over the next five years, I would get a ton of experience firsthand with community management through Space App. So yeah, I, 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 I tripped and fell right into it, but I'm so glad I did. It's interesting you say that like you had a lot of you had a lot of experience in community management that you didn't realize at the time. And I think that's pretty common for people. Like I think back to my own experience and like when I was in college, I spent a lot of time uh, I was heavily involved in the punk rock scene in Illinois, and I spent a lot of time like booking shows and putting together events, um, you know, bringing bands to town and that sort of thing. And it was very similar. It was my way to get involved and to share, you know, what I loved with other people. And I never thought of it that way. I remember my mom told me that, you know, I was an entrepreneur and I just never thought of it. I never thought of it that way, but it really, it's really true. Like a lot of those experiences, especially for those of us who get involved in a certain community or organization or something like that, it's really, is really the seed for this kind of work. Totally, totally. And it's, you know, it's powerful again, because when I look at the social impact field, that's where most of what I do, if not all of what I do kind of lives within that bubble. And, you know, when it comes to just building building impact, whatever that looks like, whether it is supporting people in implementing climate solutions or in interviewing people and showcasing their stories like I'm doing through Let's Care. It's it's really interesting to see that 
community and the perspectives and needs and values of the individual are so important. And actually, I mean, going back a little bit more to like pinpoint where I started with community building for me, you know, I, I mentioned my student organization involvement, but I was studying business and I was studying marketing more specifically within business on campus. And I end up using that degree a lot in the work that I do. And so what I think was so interesting there is just um, the, the, the ways that marketing even overlaps with community management. So I'm sure we could probably go through every profession and find how it overlaps <laughs> with community management. But yeah, you're, you're making all these light bulbs go off for me as I, as I realize my connections with this thing that's been such a huge part of my life over the last several years. No, and it's interesting because actually I feel like marketing is just discovering that in the last couple of years, especially with COVID, like like community is such a buzzword in the business world right now. And there's like all of these like independent consulting agencies and organizations that are about how your business can build community and all of that. So I think mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely appropriate and and a and a big topic of conversation right now. Yeah, totally. And it it is a buzzword, right? But I yeah, I think that you know, there, there's definitely a difference between really effective communities and this need to create a community. And one thing I'll, I'll admit is that, you know, with, with the NASA Space Apps Challenge, that is absolutely a community. Um, it continues to be a community, even though I've moved on from that work um, in the last several months. But, you know, with what I'm doing with Let's Care, while I've gone out and connected with different change makers, I've also been really thoughtful about realizing like this isn't yet a community i i I want to create a community at some point and the same goes for project drawdown but it's not yet a community and so i have this perspective of seeing like what is really community versus what are what's uh, a community that comes through in you know in in name only and that's i think a, a helpful perspective to making sure that the communities that i'm part of are are really effective and you know therefore all members of the community to benefit from yeah, and I'm sure we could do an entire podcast about like, you know, creating intentional communities that that right. aren't like, you know, fake or, you know, aren't like really driven by, you know, monetizing your users and stuff like that and trying to mm-hmm. make them, you know, feel honest and intentional. But yeah. uh, that's a whole other podcast. So. It is. I'll be back for it. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, cool. I'll keep it in mind. Um, so your first, you know, your first, you know, re- actual, not real. Uh, well, let's just say, you know, you kind of started your career in community management at uh, NASA on the Space Apps Challenge. And that was a pretty, it seems like a pretty massive thing. Like I, I what was it like 100,000 people came through that uh, organization over the yeah. years that you were on it. Um, right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and like how you approached it? Cause it seems like such a big thing, especially as like a first, you know, real gig in community management, you know? Yeah. And I, and I think what's, what was really helpful for me going into that role where I started in 2016 is that before that I had a couple of years where I was really truly focused on um, on social media management and interacting with people in that way and also having some really sustained relationships with community members through that work that I was doing. So um, before Space Apps, I was working on a project called Digital Learning Day, which was basically a community of a bunch of teachers who were bringing technology into their classrooms. And so when I got involved with the, the NASA Space Apps Challenge work, I already had that context and grounding and understanding of the world that it was happening in. I mean, I'd never actually participated in a hackathon before that. And for those who don't know, a hackathon is basically just a problem solving event where people of different skill sets. So definitely people with data skills and tech skills and um, scientific skills, but also the artists, the students, the storytellers come together to create things that respond to the quote unquote challenges that NASA identifies and create prototype solutions out of that. And so I had that context and understanding. And when I joined Space Apps in 2016, it was a community of about 160 events worldwide in 60 countries. And 
what I would find over the next four and a half years really was that we would grow and almost we would double the size of the community. And we went from actually being in 75 plus countries or about 80 countries to then because of COVID being in this, uh, you know, 150 plus countries and engaging more and more people. And so, you know, something that maybe this is just my, my perspective being so deep in it, but I think a lot of people look at space apps and even look at the numbers and see like um, more than 100,000 people in 150 plus countries over over about five years and don't necessarily think about the team that's behind that. And something that I found is that, and this might sound ridiculous to folks, but it didn't, space apps didn't really feel like as big of an undertaking as it was and I think that's in large part because of effective community management, which I am not going to take credit for. I, I really started doing the community management um, on top of about five or six years. You know, the program began in, 20, in 2012. So I had that groundwork to work with. And um, there were a lot of great process documents. There were a lot of great resources for community members. And there were a lot of processes in terms of training people. So while I know a lot of people discovered Zoom early last year um, with the start of the global pandemic, I and the Space Apps team had been using Zoom way before that. And I remember I, be, I was introduced to Zoom really uh, through Space Apps in 2016. And so, you know, I, I think that the thing that makes this global community, which again, at the time was about 160 volunteers around the world in 60 plus countries, um, effective is that it was the, the community members, I should say, were equipped with resources that we provided, were equipped with these community calls that would be really helpful and were equipped with just other information so that not every single person needed, you know, a, a call to, to talk with them about um, how to run their local hackathon event. Um, not everyone needed to be in touch constantly. And then you also had people who had been hosting these events since the very beginning, if not from a, a couple of years before. And so then they were able to help other community members host their events. And with all of this, it, you know, this global hackathon becomes a lot smaller uh, when you have resources in place, when you have volunteer community members willing to support other volunteers who are new and getting started. And, you know, I, I would not say that it's a small thing to accomplish, but I think when you, when you have a lot of the pieces in place in an effective way, it makes something like space apps a lot more doable for, for any community. Yeah, it's, it, it seems like, you know, you, I think one of the really effective tools of community, community management is delegation, you know, and it seems like you had a, an organization that was well set up to take advantage of that. Like, it's not like you were directly managing all of the hundred thousand participants and things no. you had, you had a bunch of people in their local areas who took care of their groups and you sort of were able to run the overarching program and stuff like that. Like, like there was actually a formal structure that you made good use of. Exactly. And, and I think the other point, the thing that I think about a lot and Again, maybe this is oversimplifying the approach to community management, but honestly, this has guided this guided me for years um, in leading the Space Apps program, where I, I think so much of community management is about questions, and it's about proactively answering questions that will come up. So in my first year as community manager, I am sure that I was overwhelmed with, by all of the questions coming in all of the questions that we we had coming in that didn't already have answers in the other resources. And so each and every year I was able to think, okay, how do we proactively address the questions that will come up? Uh, because I, something that I found, and this was especially the case last year with COVID, was that 
when we didn't take steps or when I didn't take steps to proactively address questions in advance, then that would mean that I'd get a lot more emails and a lot more questions about certain things. And, you know, on the flip side of that, I also found that when I would get questions on a certain topic, like repeat questions on how to you know, engage with space apps virtually, for instance, and some of the nuances of that, that to me, that pointed out that there was a gap in the resources and the context that I was providing to folks. And actually last year in 2020 was interesting because we had the space apps COVID-19 challenge, which happened in May, and then later had the annual space apps hackathon happen um, for the first time completely virtually in October. And so what that actually really made clear to me is that where there were gaps for this first ever COVID-19 challenge, which we kind of threw together over the course of two months, um, we were able to really effectively fill those gaps for October. And it led to less questions and less stress um, as, you know, as as much as you could lessen stress in a COVID (laughs) environment. you know, it, it led to that for not only me as a com- the community manager and storyteller, but also for our global organizing team overall, and of course, for our volunteers and broader community. So questions are kind of like the secret to community management, if I had to point to one thing. Again, sorry if I'm, <laughs> if I'm no. like completely slapping people in the face with, with this, but the idea, you know, to me of questions being so pivotal has been um, a big guiding light for me in terms of doing this work and really staying on top of what the community needs. No, and I liked what you said about being proactive too, because I feel like a lot of community managers are very reactive, right? Things happen in their community and they have to figure out what they're doing as opposed to them thinking, what could happen in my community and how am I going to handle it when it's happened and and when it happens? And that's like a, that's like a big difference in approach that can really impact a lot of things. Yeah. And I, I would actually add that I was just thinking about this the other day that with something that is as large as space app. So, you know, while there are these local leads, this community of volunteers all over the world doing what they're doing, um, they have questions, which I which I've mentioned, but also the broader community of participants have has questions. And so the way that we're set up, I mean, the local leads could field those questions, again, if you equip them with the answers to the questions that participants would be asking, uh, which is an important step. But um, also these participants could have questions that come up. And so the, you know, the big thing that I, I realized is that you, with a community that large, will get a ton of questions. And you really can't be reactive with every single question or every single need because you just don't have enough time. I mean, with the Space Apps program, just to give you an idea, most of the time that I was on the program, there was about a core team, believe it or not, of like four of us working on hmm. space apps. And then last year with with um, just COVID and, and the growth of the program, it grew to more like 10, 10 of us on the global organizing team overall, um, all to different degrees, uh, you know, some full-time, like I was full-time on the program, others part-time or contributing a little bit of time. But I mentioned that to say that those constraints, um, and this is something I've heard a lot, you know, constraints make you have to be, you have to be creative when you have constraints because you have to figure it out. And those constraints really make you um, not only creative, but selective about the things that you do. Like you can't just respond to everything and do everything. You have to say, well, wait, I have to prioritize and figure out, is this something that we're doing today? Is it something we're doing tomorrow or next week? Is it something we're doing next year for the program? And I think that that's actually been really helpful for you know, for, for me and our team, just to realize that um, it you don't need to respond to every single need to have a community that's going to grow and thrive. I think that's absolutely true. And, um, you know, we... Um I, I feel like in a lot of in a lot of you, you you know you talk about constraints and and needing to acknowledge um, your limitations and work within them and I feel like that's true of God I feel like that's true of almost anything you know it's like it's like you see so many industries where unlimited resources don't result in a in a better thing for people you know right yeah and I I 
you know, that's something that I've come to appreciate because most of my career, I've, I've called it lightweight storytelling. You know, most of my mm-hmm. work is as a quote unquote social impact storyteller. And so when I'm in situations where I'm the only person like I am the storytelling team or it's me and one other person as the storytelling team, you know, I, I think one thing that's great is that you, that like most organizations or people don't have experience with that. And so there's really some room to define what that looks like. But um, the, the beautiful thing is I found that you could tell these stories and incorporate storytelling into really global programs and initiatives um, with a team of one or two people really effectively. If you figure out how to target your time, uh, where where and how it needs to be targeted for to reach your goals. So um, yeah, that, every, everything you said is spot on. You know, you bring up storytelling and one of the things that I've sort of noticed in the different roles that you've had is that mm-hmm. storytelling is a big part of what you do and how you, you know, communicate with and about your the communities that you've worked with. Um, you know, how did you start realizing that yeah. storytelling was something that you wanted to do and get started actually doing it? Yeah, it's it's interesting. So I think the first time that I really grasped the power of storytelling was when I was growing up. Um, my dad, around the time that I was twelve, started a home healthcare business, and you know what his business did uh, was that it basically just paired uh, paired senior citizens living at home who were looking for service with. Um, caregivers who would go into the homes or home health care facilities or assisted living facilities. And so um, the, the thing that was interesting as my dad started that this, and again, I was like 12 or 13, hanging around the business, spending my summers uh, working there as he was getting started. And I realized that when my dad would talk about how, you know, their home health care business, this is what they do. This is the value they provide. That was sure. That was like good for people. But when my dad would talk about his own personal story and what brought him to the work, I, you know, in a very, I would say, and I've never thought about this, like, but in really valuable formative way, I was able to just kind of see people's reactions because for my dad, again, around the time that I was, was 12, um, my, my grandmother, his mother passed away and she had a long battle with Alzheimer's and, you know, that's ultimately what took her life. And so, you know, when he would talk about the, the influence that the care that she received from a caregiver named Patty um, being the thing that drove him to start his business. I saw people who were brought to tears with that and he wasn't trying to do that. My dad was just sharing his story. And it's funny because even at that time in my early teen years, I kind of would push him to tell more of that story because I saw how impactful and meaningful it was. And also it just felt good to, to see him, sort of glow in some ways when he would share that story. And and so, you know, while my dad passed away in, in 2017, my, my mom and sister continued to, to share, to run that business and share that story with the world. And, you know, it continually reminds me that it's so important to share who we are and where we're coming from with, with the world. And, you know, that was really the first experience I had with with storytelling realizing its power. But I had that reaffirmed when I was in college and in, involved in Students Against Sexual Assault in particular. And I realized that statistics and kind of hitting people over the head with the statistics, while it's important that people know the severity of the problem, it wasn't the thing that was getting through to, um, to people and through to the fraternities on campus and people in the, um, on the sports teams in the athletics department either. And so we really had to think, how do you tell this story in a way that um, people feel empowered to do something? How do you tell this story in a way that's really more human than the statistics? And that's an approach that I bring to my work to this day. 
it's much more of a sort of micro level because like we talk you can you can look at a community as a group of people in aggregate mm-hmm. or you can look at their individual stories and and yeah. you know that's sort of the macro and micro level and it's much more of a micro level of bringing those stories out rather than looking at things in aggregate it seems like yeah and i i actually think that that's the part that a lot of people miss i was giving a talk pretty recently, I think a a, a couple weeks ago, actually, and what I was pointing out, and it was just a side point to, to the broader point that I was making about the value of storytelling. But one thing that I was saying to the group was, you know, in order to be an effective storyteller, and in order to tell effective stories, you need to value people's perspectives first and foremost and you need to value the perspectives of the individuals and you know I didn't dwell on that for too long but one of the things that I kind of posed to the group for them to think about is do you really want to know the perspectives and stories of your community do you really value those those things and I, I you know I didn't know either way but one thing that I I've kind of understood is that a lot of people, a lot of organizations, to your point about um, the word community as a buzzword, for example, storytelling is also a buzzword for a lot of mm. uh, a lot of communities, a lot of organizations nowadays. And I, I think that this the, the word storytelling has has a lot of different meanings for different folks. For me, it's about really humanizing whatever it is that we're talking about and keeping in mind the individual perspectives. I'm very curious about those perspectives to the point that like in 2017, when I started Let's Care, it was just me through Zoom uh, going and interviewing people and talking with change makers and learning their stories, even if I didn't really know them beforehand. But I, I don't, I'm not sure that everyone's like as curious about other people's stories and that's okay. But I, I think if you're, aiming to effectively tell stories, you really need to value what each individual brings because that's the authentic story and that's the perspective that often goes unheard. And, and, you know, when we're able to listen to those individuals and highlight those individual perspectives, oftentimes they speak for the statistics and for the broader trends. Like that's, that's the thing I love about stories is that sure, like one individual story doesn't necessarily tell you everything you need to know about the community, but um, it could actually be pretty representative for a lot of the things that the statistics and trends and bigger surveys will tell you about a community. And, and that's something I love because I'm, I've never been a big statistics or numbers person personally. And so for me and people like me, the, the stories are what really break through and resonate. It seems like it could be a really good tool for like growing communities too. There was there was something totally. uh I was watching I was watching the trailer for uh 20s and Change before this oh. and and somebody said um you know you can't be what you can't see yeah. and you know tell you know and and you know that's I think that's a big issue is when we talk about you know diversity in the modern age and you know we talk about people who who never saw people like themselves on TVs or not not yeah. like themselves telling stories and I know you've taken a lot of effort to tell very diverse stories from diverse people yeah. and and from a wide variety of backgrounds and it seems like you know getting those stories out to people who don't hear their own stories brings them in, in a way that, yeah. that probably no other tool really could. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's so interesting to hear you say that because even listening to it, honestly, I get a little choked up thinking about <laughs> it because for me personally, like it's, um, I, I mean, like, I, I think, the work that I'm doing to, as I say, pass the mic to those who often go unheard, to change makers who often go unheard. I I think it's important, but the big reason I think it's important is because as a young person, as a black person, as a queer person, I've often felt like I don't belong in those rooms, in those spaces. And so I think that that has given me this superpower 
uh, as a community manager, but as a storyteller also to see these stories that are often overlooked or perspectives that are often overlooked and to, to be really like hypersensitive to those. And so when you talk about that approach, like everything you're saying about really um, helping people see themselves and you, you referenced the quote from 20, 20s and change. And actually, you know, I'm sure we've so many of us have heard this quote um, a lot of places in 20s and change. It was um, someone named Arturo Elizondo who mentioned it. But, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And from the start of my time on Space Apps in 2016, I, you know, I really at first was focused on, like, let's highlight women in this space because we were talking about the hackathon world, the tech world, um, the data science and um, you know, this more, this more technical space where women are really underrepresented. I mean, I know at that time in particular, only about 12% of computer science majors in the U.S. at least were, were women. And I know that number's going back up. It was higher in the, the 80s or so, and then it dipped down again, and now it's, it's picking back up a bit. But, you know, I, I kind of took on that work to focus on highlighting the voices that we didn't see, um, in part because my my older sister, Lindsay, was um, and still is very involved in the tech space. And mm. her story really stuck out with me it stuck out to me because not only is she like a black woman in the tech space, but also, you know, she, she studied computer science in college and graduated. And rather than going into the computer science field in tech, in a traditional technical job, she actually really cared about modeling and acting. She, she also majored in, in theater. And so she actually ended up going on to become a model and and having a really great career doing that and the thing that kind of came up out of all of that was that i and so many other people were able to see wow we don't normally see women as belonging in this space and we also don't see women who are beautiful as belonging in this space and that really got the wheels turning for me again at this formative time in my career to think about like okay what are some of the issues that we're up against when we're telling these stories because i could go into a room anyone could go into a room and focus on just telling stories and representing who's there but in order to get new people in a room and build a community. It's like you were saying, Greg, you need to really represent voices that aren't there so that they could see that they belong. And so my, you know, one story that I, I think about a lot or one person I think about a lot, her name is Medina. And I met her at my very first Space Apps event in 2016. And Medina, who was one of the most quiet people, um, that day was actually someone who's introduced to me by one of the local space apps nyc team members dominique and i sat there with medina talking um not recording anything but just talking for like 30 minutes about um her her story and it turns out she was a at the time 46 year old mother of two who was a refugee to the u.s and she moved to the u.s about 10 years before spent one year um, working at the Library of Congress and then had both of her kids. And so she was a stay-at-home mom and she was joining Space Apps because she saw it as an opportunity to not only kind of restart her career after about a decade off of that, but also she saw it as an opportunity to teach her kids that technology could be used for good. And I'll, I'll that video, you know, the way that that's captured is only about 30 or 45 seconds. Um, but for me, it's so powerful because it's a reminder that like each of these individual stories really have the power to get through to different groups that might not see themselves being involved. And, and Medina's story reminds me of that. So there's, there's so much, so much that comes to mind when I think of, of storytelling, but yeah, it is really a powerful tool to help people see themselves and see that this, and at least signal to them really intentionally that that they belong in a space. 
I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like you've done most of your uh, storytelling through film and video. Are you, do you have like any experience as a filmmaker? Is that something that you learned along the way? Like, how did you put all that together? I, you know, I, so my, the start of my career um, when I was doing social media management, I mean, the thing that I learned and you know, it's still true to this day is that pictures, video are the most engaging forms of content. And so I was able to take that, that understanding, which comes from a lot of data and research and insight from the digital world, and then apply that to how I approach things. And so even from 2014, when I was starting my career, it was I was really focused on, okay, let's ask these community members to just take out their phone. And it's kind of funny to think back to because like now we know how great an iPhone or a smartphone is in terms of quality. Um, Not as great in 2014. I think I probably had a, a smartphone for a couple of years, but the smartphone really did create you know, this opportunity for people to make these pretty high quality videos and to share their perspectives in ways that were actually really compelling and accessible with folks. And so that's where video started for me. And it was all really learning along the way. So it starts with asking people to make videos, but then you're thinking, how could I edit these videos together in some way? Or maybe I could clip this video to make it even shorter, or huh, maybe I could string these together in, in a series to tell a story. And, you know, it's, it's funny to think about because now like just in May of this year, I, I released the twenties and change San Francisco film. And that was, entirely a result of learning along the way which it kind of blows my mind that like a a film and um you know just recently i learned that that um 20s and change san francisco is being recognized with the san francisco black film festival this year but to learn that a film that i could make based on just learning along the way could actually be a legitimate film that's recognized by by people and so um you know it's 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 just like constantly and it's it's I laugh thinking about this but it's constantly like taking those moments to like open up at first for me it was iMovie and explore with that and then realizing like okay maybe I should learn to use Adobe Premiere and Final Cut Pro Um, now I think the thing I realize is that while I could totally still edit that you know I thought it's so helpful to have a team and have people you could reach out to. And so I've worked with like in the case of twenties and change, San Francisco, a a video editor um, on a bunch of it, um, at least in finishing the project. But yeah, you, I think that's again, the, the spirit of even working with communities and, and storytelling where you kind of just need to adapt to what the need is of the moment. And um, I know a ton of storytellers who are kind of like these Swiss army knives of uh, storytelling. I haven't thought about that analogy too much, but you know, I I've, I've met a lot of them who have all of these different skills. And I think that that's, that's, you know, what we really need to do because there is no one size fits all approach for the stories we tell. Um, Though video, I think as we all, you know, could attest personally is just so compelling and digestible and it helps humanize things more than text or even audio alone at times can do. It's so interesting. I don't know, this might be a little bit of a digression, but like I went to college for um, photography and I'm, 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 I'm an aged, I'm a Gen Xer, right? So that was in the days before digital. And um, I dabbled a little in filmmaking back then. And it's like, mm. I when I think of filmmaking, it, yeah. I think of it as this like mystical thing that is that takes such special specialized skill and specialized equipment to do. And it's like, mm-hmm. and you know, I've watched the world, you know, go by since then. And I realized that it's become much more accessible now, but you're right. You know, we're all walking around with HD video cameras in our pockets at this point yeah. and, and the tools to, you know, make, to do basic, you know, nonlinear filmmaking come f- bundled free on every computer we buy. And it's just, it's interesting to hear how like that accessibility that has come with technology has turned into something that like real people can use to tell stories, you know? Yeah. And I, I think to kind of take that even a step further, 
it's it's interesting because you look at YouTube, for example, and I'm yeah. sure for for every like really well done video or really successful video that is seen by a lot of people because there's definitely a difference between a well done video and a video that kind of goes quote unquote viral. You also, I'm sure have, you know, I don't even, I would guess hundreds and hundreds of videos that are either, you know, not well made. I would say the same for thinking about Zoom and how we engage people over Zoom. There are, you know, in this last year in particular, we're most of us have have gone virtual in some way, shape, or form. There's this, you know, there there are some really great virtual events. Um, and I, I was just talking with a group about this the other day, so it's top of mind. But then there are also some not so great ones, or ones that could use <laughs> ones that could use room room for improvement. Yeah, um, just because you know you. There's a difference between opening your your phone up, for instance, and recording something and then kind of posting it versus having sure. a, a thoughtful approach to it. And I think the thing that's helped me over just this time in, in doing this d- different types of video work, but in storytelling in general, one has been just the organizations that I've worked with. So like one of the first organizations that I was doing some work with. I mentioned Digital Learning Day as one, but Honda was one of Honda Government Relations was one of my first clients. And so there's like a certain standard that they have that doesn't, you know, I don't think that they necessarily knew what um, what story should look like, but I think they had an idea of what quality they would need as a brand. And I've been really, really um, I've, I've said lucky in the past, but, you know, really thankful, just grateful for the opportunity to not only work with NASA, but also with other brands uh, involving storytelling, like the USAID program or Nike or Walmart. And so this has really helped me figure out like, okay, if I'm going to tell a story, I have to figure out how to do it in a way where like, if I'm going live on Facebook, where it's not like shaky camera um, Mm -hmm. in my hand, because that doesn't like live up to the quality the client expects. And, you know, just doing that, but then also being a student of a student of the story storytelling game, if you will, um, has been really helpful because, you know, you and I'm sure so much of this applies to community management also, but it's like when you really take time to read or watch or consume what other really great storytellers or community managers are are doing, it helps you grow. Like even just sitting and watching and and um, listening and learning is is something that at least for me helps make me better. And I've I've seen that be the case for for so many others too. That's, that's really great. I, um, I mean, it's, it's like, you know, when you do something for long enough, it's like you almost, especially if you care about the result really deeply, totally. you can't, you can't help but learn it better. You can't help but take the lessons of every single thing that you do and make it better and better over time. And yeah. and it's, it's great that the tools are there to allow you to do that. Yeah. And I mean, you, you yeah, I, I love that, uh, that just the points that you're making too, cause they're kind of opening up, um, reminded me of some of the ways that I've approached my work just in general I've you know and I know that this is a definitely a privilege but I've had the privilege of doing what I love and I remember um, when I was graduating college that someone was kind of talking through you know think about what you're good at think about what you like to do and think about what makes you money and do the thing that's like at the center of those three things. And I've, I've just been really thankful that it's worked out for me so far that I've been able to do the things that I love. And so when you do do what you love or when you put yourself in the position to do what you love, as opposed to like, you know, what you're, parents and family might want you to do or what society might expect for you. I personally think that you're, you, you end up being a lot better at it just because you care and you're willing to work through um, the the really challenging times and your excitement shows like that. It's the same with podcasting too. Like when, when you're on a podcast, Greg, or when I'm on podcast talking about something that I'm really excited by, it translates. And I, and I, and I love that uh, for, for um, the listeners, but also just for like the quality of, of the content, like do, sure. do what you, you love if you can. Mm-hmm. 
Um, you've talked a little, a lot about how, you know, you've used, you know, the storytelling that you've brought through from your communities to teach sort of the world about them. But like, what have you gotten out of those stories? Like, what have you learned about the communities that you're a part of and that you participate in through, through, you know, hearing these stories and telling them to other people? Wow. I've learned everything. (laughs) It feels like I've learned uh, everything I know through the the people I've met and stories I've heard. But, you know, maybe just to kind of like focus that a little bit, I have, I, I think I've always had a hard time learning about things that are, that I'm not necessarily as interested in through textbooks or through sitting and reading, um, or even learning about things that I'm interested that way. Um, it's, it's so powerful to be able to stop and sit with someone and ask them questions to listen to about their story and experience or to ask follow-up questions because then it, it really helps you, um, just kind of ensure that the conversation is relevant. That's, that's the thing that you get from like a live real time conversation that you can't get from, um, anything else. Just when you're connecting with someone virtually in person that you, you're able to dive in. And so for me, just the learning has been really, really incredible and being able to find commonality and community with people through our stories has been great because, with most of the people that I've interviewed for Let's Care, for example, of uh, 100 plus people to date, I, I have to count exactly how many it's been again sometime soon. But um, that's, it, it's really like, it, it's almost, one thing I'll say is that I think that I've accomplished my goal when I've done the interview or when I've had that conversation. Um, or at least one of my goals, which is to learn and to talk with this really cool person and to to be able to share that with the world is also a great benefit. But if if no one listens to or watches it, I'm still fulfilled in being able to learn. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the biggest thing generally from the storytelling, just being able to ask questions, relevant questions to me and and definitely to to people who tune in and listen to those things. And then to um, just to to learn and and share that more with with the world i mean it sounds like you know we talk about you know you can't be what you can't see in a lot of ways Mm. those stories make people feel less alone right because they're um because they're they can because they can see there are other people like them out there and it feels like it's had that same effect on you as well yeah and i mean more specifically within that i have time and time again in, you know, in my experiences with NASA, but also with other groups have often been the only one of me in the room. And I was, Mm -hmm. I was just writing about this for um, a column I'll, I'll be publishing soon, but you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting when, you know, when you're a young person in a space where there aren't a ton of young people that you know, that already could feel a little bit lonely, right? But then, you know, you're a Black person and a young person in a space like that, or you're a Black person, a queer person, and a young person, or, you know, for women in spaces that are male-dominated, it could feel really lonely. And so I, you know, the thing that I've loved about my storytelling most is that it's been definitely selfish in that that way of just helping find voices that um, help me feel less alone, where I could be working in community in environments and organizations or in communities where you know, the, the teams that I work with might not be the most representative of me and my experience. And yet I'm still able to have those, like those glimpses into people's stories, people who who do share those experiences. And I'm still able to find that community and still able to feel less alone. So it's it's really cool to have this opportunity to to share stories that um, help me feel more included, but also along the way really do a lot of work to to do the same thing for other people. And so that that's definitely one of the biggest benefits for, for me personally. Uh, but again, it's, it's cool that it's not like, it doesn't feel that as selfish as it is, even though there's nothing wrong with being selfish about wanting representation um, because 
it's providing representation for a lot of different groups too along the way. And I love mm-hmm. that for me and for the other people who are drawn in by those stories, I'm able to say, including in the space of space apps, um, hey, you, you're you really welcome here. And um, I want you to know that as community management manager and putting in the work to ensure that. And I also want you to see that like here are a lot of the people who who might resonate with you who have also had that positive experience of being welcomed. And so I'm I yeah, you that's a that's a great point and, and a huge less tangible benefit, but something that I think about probably every day. That's really great. Um as as sort of a uh before we wrap up, I know that in, you, uh, as a complete new topic, sort of, yeah. you, um, you, you host a podcast about professional wrestling, and I, I as do. somebody who's also involved in a very uh, niche fandom, mm-hmm. am always interested in hearing about people's experiences with their fandoms. So, sort of, how did how did you like how what what is the wrestling community like and how did you get involved in doing this podcast um and all of that like what what tell that story yeah so it's it's an it interesting sounds, it story. sounds very it sounds it's interesting because it's so much it's so different than all of the other work that you do right you know it's it's so funny because so the the podcast just to start is the wrestling rehab up on uh, Rob has a podcast and specifically on the reality TV rehab ups section of Rob has a podcast, which is also like totally hilarious to me because, well, maybe I shouldn't, I shouldn't call out the fact that pro wrestling is in reality TV, but some people (laughs) think it's it's completely real. And there are aspects of it that are, that are real, but this is, that's not what the podcast is about. Um, You know, I grew up, as a pro wrestling fan, I actually discovered it through video games in the probably about 2000 or in the late 90s, just like growing up with an older brother and, and, you know, family friends. I remember being in the room and dying to play these games. And honestly, maybe <laughs> I wouldn't have loved pro wrestling as much as I do if they just let me play when I wanted to. I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. But I was really, really just trying to play those video games and was so curious about what I was seeing on the screen. I didn't know that it was real until, or, you know, that it was an actual thing with live humans um, until I just stumbled upon it on TV and the internet and, and I started watching. And, you know, when I was probably about 12 years old or 13 years old, my dad took me to a pro wrestling show because I begged him to do that. And we ended up going to a ton of shows after that. And so I grew up as a fan, you know, I went off to college in, in 2010 and I, I kind of, you know, I, I followed along with pro wrestling, but I didn't really watch it week to week on TV like I did. I, I would find, you know, ways to to kind of keep up and read the news about it um, online. And, and the thing is, over, you know, maybe about seven or eight years ago, I want to say, WWE, uh, the, the main pro wrestling company, started something called the WWE Network where you could watch online. And for me, I think that's the thing that kind of saved my wrestling fandom because it made it so easy to keep up and follow along and watch the uh, <laughs> pay-per-views, which aren't pay-per-views anymore, but you right. know, watch the pay-per-views. And so that was kind of my origin story with wrestling. And I, I've really been a fan since even though you know the last several years i was definitely less of a fan than i was in you know growing up because i would go to all these different shows i was obsessed with every single aspect of pro wrestling um and i think the thing that stood out to me just to stop in on that because it is so different than social change stuff is you know you're seeing these in a lot of ways, like real world, real world superheroes, um, you're seeing people do these really incredible things. And, and I've always kind of found it funny that pro wrestling doesn't get the respect that it, you know, that I think it deserves because at the end of the day, I mean, like I can't flip off of one large 
I, can, I don't know. There's just a lot of risks and a lot of injuries that happen and things that I appreciate in wrestling. But, um, you know, to tie that in with Rob has a podcast, I actually got involved with the Rob has a podcast community sort of at this point in my life where I just started listening to a ton of pot new podcasts. And I don't think Rob knows this story. And I've also been reflecting on this a little too, but, you know, it, I mentioned, um, in 2017, March of 2017, my dad passed away and, you know, that's such a lonely experience when you're, I think I was 24 years old and I just like started to listen to more podcasts and started to like find ways to really like entertain myself. Um, and just, like hear people's voices and feel less alone and connect with communities and what was really cool was that it was about shows like survivor which i loved and big brother which i loved and i sort of just slowly became hooked to to the content on the network and then i think it was a year and a half later i randomly in you know in the middle of of june and around father's day saw a podcast come out where Rob was talking about losing his dad. And I was just shocked like that, <laughs> that we had this in common. I don't know why he decided to make the podcast and publish it about his experience there, but I, I was so thankful. And I think that was the thing that started to really hook me like personally to Rob has a podcast. And then about a year ago in June of, of, um, of 2020, you know, everything was happening with um, George Floyd and just the protests that came out of that with Black Lives Matter and otherwise. And I just really loved with that, um, how Rob was talking about that a few months prior to that. I loved how Rob and the Rob has a podcast network were, were talking about um, sexual assault. And I had a lot of experience with that. And I was just so um, proud of this community because I felt like it really represented the so many different perspectives. Um, and I was just in awe of that. And I had this opportunity last year, like the rest of the community to apply for the RHAP class of 2020, where I could be a podcaster. And so I applied, I was accepted, started podcasting about like Big Brother and other reality shows. And and then um, the co-host for the wrestling wrap up, Mari Forth, who's also part of the um, RHAP class of 2020, asked me if I wanted to podcast with her about pro wrestling, because I mentioned it to her in passing that I, I love this stuff. And the rest is history. And I feel like I'm more, my, my wrestling fandom is so much stronger than it, it's ever <laughs> been because of the wrestling wrap up podcast and because of the RHAP community and Mari and Rob. And so I just have so much to, I could go on and on about this and how much I'm <laughs> thankful for, but that's kind of the story of how I ended up here. And I think the thing that's cool is that, you know, I'm sure for you, for, for others, there's, um, there's, there, there are all these different stories around why this community in particular, not just Rob as a podcast and the wrestling wrap up, but, you know, uh, this podcasting fandom community is so impactful and important to all of us. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just thankful that I, that I could end up here, even though I didn't plan on it. Um, the one thing I'll mention just on top of that is that I talk a lot, Mari and I talk a lot about social issues on our podcast about pro wrestling. And it's very much a podcast like by us. You know, so we're having fun, but also we are bringing our identities to the table. And I think that the the podcast, the wrestling wrap up actually really helped me and is still helping me find my own voice um, within the world like how do i talk about the things that i care about even if they're not always falling into the same buckets and I, i'm just really thankful for that chance to kind of find my own voice and use it in in a way that's probably not expected but in a way that's really fulfilling i think something that's interesting that's about and uh you about 
I think a lot of not even just on uh, Rob as a podcast, but all of the reality mm. TV um, podcasts or a lot of them is that they have been kind of using that lens to talk yeah. about social issues that they see in the world. Like you were talking about how in the issues surrounding uh, Survivor 39, which was a big yeah. th- thread around, um, you know, sexual assault. And then Rob yeah. was using that to bring, to talk about it on the network. And he was bringing, you know, experts about sexual assault on to talk about, you know, um, mm-hmm. how to get help if you're a victim and all of this kind of thing. And, you know, bringing in, you know, more and more. And there was all of the work with the survivor di- diversity group to bring yeah. attention to the, to the issues of diversity and survivor and big brother and other shows. And, and, and it's, 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 it's really interesting to me how they're turning using reality TV, which I think a lot of people view yeah. as kind of like frivolous or, exactly. you know, or or meaningless and you know i'm sure the same is true for wrestling too and using yeah. that as a lens through which it, to examine these social issues is i think really really impressive craig i don't know why but this definitely feels like therapy from for me because <laughs> I'm, I'm processing so much i hadn't really thought through so cohesively but i mean yeah, a lot of people, of course, look at pro wrestling as this frivolous thing. And the same goes for reality TV. And the same actually also goes for a lot of stories of like people or change makers who often go unheard. Like people kind yeah. of, you know, wave a hand and say that that doesn't matter. I don't care about that. But the thing is, like from my experience, I mentioned growing up with pro wrestling, I found so much strength and empowerment, like through seeing these people who were like really going out there and doing some really kind of uh, superhuman things on, on TV, even if it's choreographed and scripted, like it was so amazing to see. And then I think of reality TV and I was also obsessed with that growing up. And so I was able to kind of learn about the world and get a better idea of the world, not just the world overall, but also what the world could be for me as, you know, people, a person in my identities um, through the characters I saw. And so the thing that I love just when it comes to actually, you know, thankfully, um, not only pro wrestling and reality TV, but also the work I do is that so many more of those voices and experiences of people who aren't normally focused on and represented are being represented. And like, even in pro wrestling, just this year to talk about like important things for the very first time in about, you know, I think it's a 30 year, 30 plus year history of WrestleMania, the big wrestling event that, that, you know, casual fans and, you know, everyday folks know about, you know, we had two black women who were main eventing the show together, two black women who were competing for like this women's championship. And so again, I, you know, it's, it's scripted and all that. And I get that. Um, But at the same time, like the, what it stands for is so powerful. And that goes for reality TV and the representation we'll get with the, you know, survivor diversity pledge, which pledges for 50% of casting to be of, of, black people indigenous people and people of color and you know i'm i'm just thankful that you know this world that i sort of kind of just fell into again as a as a kid with all the different content we were talking about could actually be like much more of a safe and welcoming space for me and people like me and you know i don't know how i watched it uh growing up because the representation was just not really there and it's so bad but man i'm glad that i did because i could see the progress and see how far it's come and that's that's the amazing thing about being able to do all the work that i'm doing which is really cool and which you helped me realize so thank you for that (laughs) frank uh it's my pleasure (laughs) yeah Um, so uh, before we wrap up, why don't you tell, um, people what you're kind of working, you've mentioned let's care a bunch, why don't yeah. you tell people about that and where they can find you online. And if you have anything else you want to, um, get out there that people can uh, hunt down. Definitely. So as I mentioned, let's care is where since 2017, I've been interviewing and sharing the stories of change makers. And in the last couple of years, last few years, especially I've really focused on 
the voices that often go unheard and on a lot of underrepresented or underestimated change makers in the work that I'm doing. And so if you want to learn about Let's Care, you can go to www. Or I don't, I don't know why I always throw in the www, but I just want people <laughs> to know um, that www.letscare is the website, not letscare.com, but let's.care. And within that, just this year, um, a month ago, as I mentioned, I released 20s and Change San Francisco, um, a film that's about 90 minutes long and featuring conversations with 21 change makers over six days without uh, throughout the beautiful Bay Area, all about identity and impact. So that's at let's.care, um, but more specifically at let's.care slash film. And that's the big thing that I really want to get out into the world. Um, I talked about the wrestling wrap up. If you are uh, you know, interested in pro wrestling, that's the podcast that I do. But um, more broadly, it's part of this thing called Rob has a podcast, which is this massive reality TV podcasting network. So if you watch like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette or whichever one of those is on, I don't know because <laughs> I don't watch either of those. But, um, you know, if you watch reality TV, it's a great place to go. And, um, you know, Rob and Rob has a podcast didn't ask me to do this, but I would absolutely encourage people you know, if you're really into reality TV to actually become an RHAP patron, because, um, you know, you could pledge like, for me, it's $5 a month, but you know, you get all this extra content and you get to engage with this really phenomenal community. I personally love to watch Facebook Fridays, which is a thing that Rob does once in a while. Um, and just to kind of meet the community members that way. And so, um, that those are kind of the things I, I just want to plug and shout out. But if people want to get in touch with me, um, they can just hit me up on social media at Matt Scott GW, or I'm over on LinkedIn, just search for Matt Scott, and you'll find me there. But um, yeah, I tried to make it really easy to find me and get in touch. Um, and I'll, I mean, I guess the last thing I'll say just to make it super easy is if people wanted to email me, it's um, hello at let's.care or community to the point of this conversation at let's.care. Um, and so that's, yeah, a lot of different places, but I guess that's just the, that's, that's life. There are a lot of different things going on, but I'm, I'm really glad that I, I have them going on. I'm glad that people um, might want to check them out. Great. Well, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time today. It's been a really fun conversation and I really enjoyed having you on. I agree. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for listening to This Must Be The Place. You can find out more or subscribe at thismustbetheplacepodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at tmbtp underscore podcast. Our theme was composed by Will from America, and our logo was designed by Marissa Epstein. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you soon.